Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are joined by Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I'll wish you a Merry Christmas since we're coming up on Christmas. Uh, Merry Christmas to you and your family as well and to all of our listeners. Thank you. So what's on tap today? Well, as you say, Merry Christmas. Christmas is coming up this Sunday. And I'd like to use a meditation that I prepared some years ago. I titled it to the Magi, the Monarch, and the Messiah. And the significance of this is that usually at Christmas time, we think this is the time we can take a break from politics and governmental matters and so on. But those things do go on. And the fact of the matter is, Christmas does have some spiritual and political implications. And I think those will become clear as we go through the message here. When we close this message, assuming the time permits, I have a couple of reports on cases and a few other things going on. But let's look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Now, when Jesus was born of Bethlehem in Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. You know, for 2,000 years, the wise men, the kings, the magi of the east have intrigued us. And we ask, who were they? Where did they come? Who were they seeking and why? And could their quest have had anything to do, even in part, with principles of law and government, the principles that Western civilization has traditionally, until recently at least, held very dear? Well, I believe it did. It should not surprise anyone that these kings would be concerned about law and government. Christ is our personal savior, and that is represented in the shepherds coming to worship Jesus, and they demonstrate that he is Lord of the common person, Lord of the human heart, but he is also Lord of the nations. And we read in Isaiah, for example, that the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. A lot of people wonder when they hear that phrase, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Are Wonderful and Counselor to be separated by a comma or not? Or is it Wonderful Counselor? Well, it's a good question. And the fact is, grammatically, in the Hebrew, it could be either. Hebrew doesn't have a lot of the grammar distinctions that the English language or that many Western languages have. And grammatically, it could be either. It could be wonderful counselor, or it could be wonderful counselor. My own personal belief is that the author's intent was symmetry with the other things he says. And so I would say wonderful counselor as a parallel with mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Peaceful Prince, or Prince of Peace. So, 
point of the matter is he's a prince he's a king he is lord of the nations the government will be upon his shoulder and matthew in particular emphasizes christ's role as lord of the nations by presenting this account of the magi who came to worship him luke more emphasizes christ's role as personal savior by presenting the account of the shepherds common men who come to worship him and both are necessary for a complete understanding of his earthly mission and they sought what man has sought from the beginning the savior who would release man from the curse of adam's fall and restore him to his original paradise genesis 3 records that god expelled our original parents adam and eve from eden and he cursed the ground for their sake after they sinned against him but in the same passage in genesis 3 god also promised them a savior the seed of the woman who will bruise the head of the serpent and throughout the generations the faithful have looked for the coming of god's promised messiah but others have looked to false saviors and counterfeit messiahs have arisen in every age god had promised in his word that the savior would come first as a suffering servant we see that in isaiah 53 where he says all we like sheep have gone astray and the lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all that he was bruised for our iniquities we're told and only later in revelation 19 will he come as a victorious king but many even among god's own people looked only for the latter they wanted him to come as a conquering hero a victorious king not as a suffering servant and in fact that was the problem with israel they didn't think they needed a suffering servant because they didn't believe they were sinners they didn't believe that they needed a suffering servant to die for their sins because they didn't realize that they were sinners in fact if anything they thought that throughout their history of slavery under egypt and the assyrian conquest of the babylonian captivity and so many other things that by all of this they had earned a messiah well by definition you don't earn a messiah if you think you've earned him then you're not ready for him and the message particularly of the minor prophets is that god is trying to break us through repentance and he is trying to restore us by making us penitent of our sins even there at palm sunday when you see the people rejoicing as jesus enters jerusalem they're waving palms and shouting hosanna which means save now even at this time they're looking for him as a conquering hero they're wanting him to proclaim that he is the king and throw out the romans and others that were oppressing and many of that same crowd just a few days later when they found that he was not going to proclaim himself as king would start shouting crucify him we will not have this man to reign over us but the christ on the cross was rejected or ignored as man looked to the civil government for salvation they wanted him to be a civil ruler and they wanted him to restore 
the golden age that they saw as being from the past. Now, this doesn't mean that civil government is ungodly. It's quite the opposite. God has ordained civil government. We see that in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, that there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. He's ordained civil government to exercise sin, restrain the exercise of sin, to enforce order, to protect human rights, to defend against foreign aggressors, to foster social organization. And those who are called to a civic office have a high godly responsibility to perform. But the problem arises when men look to civil government to perform the functions that God has delegated to the church, or when men look to the church to perform the functions that God has delegated to civil government, when civil rulers seek to become saviors, and when false messiahs become kings. God established these two institutions, church and state, each with its own responsibilities. The role of the church is to proclaim the word of God, to convert people, and to teach people principles and godly character. The role of the state is to restrain the exercise of sin. And we start, when we start looking to the state to be a Messiah, we are inevitably going to be disappointed. When we start looking to the church to be a civil government, we're going to be disappointed there too. So, most emphatically, this does not mean that government must be divorced from God or that law must be divorced from biblical morality. Government functions best when it is based upon the solid foundation of the Ten Commandments, and Luther and Calvin both spoke of the Ten Commandments as the embodiment of natural law. Dean Wigmore of Northwestern University called the Ten Commandments the greatest short moral code ever formulated. But the role of government is limited to enforcing legal principles of right and wrong and defending the liberty and safety of the people. God never intended that civil government should attempt to change basic human nature or to eradicate all sinful impulses or to usher in the golden age. Government must be godly. But government must not try to become God. But almost from the beginning, people looked to civil rulers to usher in the golden age. There's a classic book, Christ and the Caesars, by Engel Ethelbert Stauffer, published in 1952 by Westminster Press of Philadelphia. And Stauffer says, one of the earliest learnings of man, or yearnings of mankind is the longing for God to appear on earth. Egyptians and Persians, Greeks and Romans, relate mysterious myths of gods who once walked the earth in human form. The Norse had myths about Odin doing the same. In annual festivals, they celebrated the cult renewal of that mythical theophany, the epiphany of Apollo, the advent of the sun god, the birth of the heavenly child of the age, who is to lead in a new era of salvation. With ecstatic cries and hymns, they called upon God to appear and would call to their God, come and do not delay. For where the deity moves as a man among men, the dream of the ages is fulfilled, the pain of the world is scattered, and there is heaven on earth. Such longings 
representing corruption of God's promise to send the Messiah, and the tendency to look to the state to do that which only God can do. And when people expect the state to do that which only God can do, they begin to worship the state as God. Now, this was common in the ancient world, common in the pagan world especially. State worship, emperor worship, they were the rule rather than the exception. The Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, writing around 70 AD in his Antiquities of the Jews, tells us that Nimrod, and we read about Nimrod in Genesis, but Flavius Josephus gives us some more detail about Nimrod. He's referred to in Genesis as the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the word hunter can mean killer, probably better translated conqueror, that he took a leading role in the building of the Tower of Babel to avenge himself on God for having destroyed the world in a flood. And he says that Nimrod changed the government into a tyranny. Alexander Hislop, in his classic work, The Two Babylons, published in 1916, says that the Sumerians, those were the ancestors of the Babylonians, made Nimrod their king. And after his death, they deified him, and they worshipped him as the chief of their pantheon of gods. Now, worshipping a ruler as though he were a god seems strange to many Westerners. Through the centuries of Bible teaching, we have come to understand that God is all-powerful and all-knowing, infinitely above all that man is or ever could be. In the Western view, no man could ever become God. But the pagan view of God is different. Pagan view is that gods are superior to men in their knowledge and in their power. But they are not all-knowing or all-powerful. Nor are they perfectly just or righteous. In other words, the difference between a god and a man in the pagan thought is not the absolute difference that we would see in Judeo-Christian religions, but rather it is just a matter of degree. In the pagan view, especially the Greek, the gods have character flaws much like ours. They find themselves in the same intrigues and betrayals as men, only on a more colossal scale. The difference between men and God is one of degree, according to Greek mythology. Somewhere between gods and men were heroes. Hercules, for example, was not a god, but a hero, a man who achieved immortality by his courage and his valor. In the pagan view, the idea that the king could be a god, or descended from the gods, or that a king could ascend to godlike status is not that far-fetched. And of course, pagan kings employed all the trappings and ceremonies to encourage that belief. They found it much to their advantage that the people would think they were gods, whether they were actually gods or not. Well, in contrast to this pagan view of divinity, God's word and God's people stand in marked contrast to this pagan view. Israel began a as a confederate republic of 12 tribes, governed by elders and judges with no king in Israel but God himself. The day would come when Israel would demand a king so that they could be like the nations around them, which is one of the stupidest reasons I could think of for wanting a king. The nations around them were tyrannies and miserable, but that's what they wanted. But even then, 
Israel's king was to be a limited monarch. God spoke prophetically through Moses in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shall possess it, and shall dwell therein, and shall say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me, thou shalt not in any wise set him king over thee, except whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set over thee, thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord hath said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself that his heart turn away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. And it shall be, when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests, the Levites, and it shall be with him. And he shall read therein all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may proclaim and prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Unlike the Egyptian pharaoh, for example, who proclaimed himself to be a god and who was worshipped and obeyed as a god, Israel's king was to be one of the people. He must be a Jew, not a foreigner. Being of one blood with him, his countrymen were less likely to regard him then as though he were a god if he was, say, their second cousin. He was not to accumulate great wealth or power. And he was to write out a copy of the law, the law of God, and read from it daily and follow it throughout his reign. The great object was that he was to be under the law of God, and he was not to have his heart lifted up above his brethren. And then he could still be a good king. I don't think monarchy was ever God's perfect plan for Israel, but with a limited monarchy, a constitutional monarchy, they could still be a blessed nation. What does all this have to do with the Magi? in their visit to the baby Jesus. Well, let's get back to that subject, and we'll see how these things relate. This is the message of the prophet Daniel. Daniel spoke to the great Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. He said to King Nebuchadnezzar that God removeth kings and setteth up kings. In other words, kings ruled at the whim of God. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar, in response to this, erected a great golden image and commanded everyone to fall down and worship it, we see in chapter 3 of Daniel. This image represented the Babylonian state, and Nebuchadnezzar is the head of that state. And so Nebuchadnezzar clearly believes in state worship and emperor worship, wants people to worship him as though he is God. In chapter 2, you recall, he had had a dream of a great image, an image with a head of gold, a chest of silver, belly and thighs of brass, and legs of iron, feet of iron mixed with clay. And these represented four great empires, the first being Nebuchadnezzar's own empire, Babylonian, 
had, as Daniel said to him, thou art the head of gold. But he said, there are four empires that are going to come after you. The chest and shoulders of silver, meaning Persia. The belly and thighs of brass, meaning Greece. The legs of iron, meaning Rome. And that these would all be destroyed and subsumed by the kingdom of God. But Nebuchadnezzar, you might say that whole dream just went to his head and he built an image that was all gold, representing himself. Daniel's three friends, as you recall, were willing to show all the respect that was due to a great Babylonian king, but they were willing to face death by fire rather than worship this image or that which it represented. As Daniel proclaimed in chapter 4 and verse 32, Nebuchadnezzar finally came to understand, finally at the end of chapter 4 after the second vision, that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. Once Nebuchadnezzar could bow before God and recognize that he was a king only at the sufferance of God, and to do the will of God only then, could he become a great king, and he was at that point. The Apostle Paul then declared that the civil ruler is ordained of God and is the minister of God to thee for good, Romans 13. Yet Paul wrote those words possibly from a jail in Corinth. At least he was in jail in Corinth and other places on many occasions, indicating that governmental authority is not absolute. Peter when he spoke about the duty to obey civil rulers, he spoke about this in 1 Peter chapter 2. But when he was commanded to stop preaching the gospel, he and the other apostles declared, we ought to obey God rather than men. That's 529. Now, at the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, the Jews faced difficult relations with the Roman authorities. In Luke 20, 19 through 25, we read that the chief priests and scribes asked Jesus whether it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. Now, this was a trick question. And they thought by giving Jesus a question like this, they could dispose of it. If he answers no, then they'll tattle with the Romans, and the Romans will arrest him for urging people not to pay tax. If he answers yes, well, his popularity in the next Jerusalem poll is going to be down about 90 points because paying taxes to the Romans was probably even less popular to them than paying taxes to our government is to us today. So either way, they thought they were rid of it. But notice Jesus' response. He doesn't give them a direct answer to the question. When you're the Son of God, you don't have to. Rather, he says, show me a coin, and they show him a coin. Whose image is this? And they say, Caesar's. And he says, render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Lord Acton said about that passage, and let's look at what Lord Acton had to say right after our break. We are back. 
This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, as we went to break, you were talking about rendering unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and uh, Lord Acton had some thoughts on this. Well, Lord Acton wrote concerning this passage. Lord Acton was a remarkable man in so many ways, and so many of his insights into American law are very, very well taken. For example, when he says that power tends to corrupt, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Most people are familiar with that statement. Most people are not familiar with the next part of his statement, which is, and great men are almost always bad men, meaning their power needs to be limited. But he says, when Christ said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's, he gave the state a legitimacy it had never before enjoyed, but set bounds to it that had never yet been acknowledged. And he not only delivered the precept, but he also forged the instrument to execute it. To limit the power of the state ceased to be the hope of patient, ineffectual philosophers and became the perpetual charge of a universal church. It is the church's job, he is saying, to limit the power of the state. Now, at the time of Christ, Rome was in transition from a republic to an empire. The SPQR, Senatus Populus, K. Romana, the governing body over Rome for half a millennia, was becoming a rubber stamp for the emperor, who increasingly claimed for themselves the attributes of divinity. Octavian subdued the, em the empire, and the Senate gave him the title Augustus Caesar, or Divine King. He issued coins that were superinscribed Caesar Divi Filius, that is, Caesar, son of God. Throughout the empire, temples were built, sacrifices and prayers offered to the goddess Roma and the god Augustus, and the poet Virgil proclaimed of Augustus, this is the man, the one who has been promised again and again, the world savior who ushered was ushered in the age of gold, as Stauffer observes again. At this time, the ancient world trembled with excitement that deliverance was at hand. This God-man walking on earth was coming. And yet, these wise men of the East came not to worship Augustus, but to seek him who was born king of the Jews. Now, who were these wise men? Well, Matthew calls them the Magoi, or Magi, and they probably came from the eastern countries, Persia and Babylon. The priestly caste in those countries, known as the Magi, had existed for centuries and may have borne some similarity to the Celtic Druids. The Bible does not call them kings, but Tertullian, writing about 200 AD, says they were well-nigh kings. They were highly influential advisors to the Persian and Babylonian kings, as Daniel attests in Daniel in chapter 1, 19 to 21, chapter 2, verse 2, and verse 24, chapter 4, verse 7 through 9, chapter 5, verse 7, speaks about the Magi, this priestly caste, kind of like the royal cabinet, you might say. They were the advisors to the king, but they also played a prominent role in selecting a new king. And in so doing, they looked to the will of the heavens, and they believed that the will of the heavens was revealed through the stars. As they looked to the heavens, they saw a star that led them to Bethlehem. 
And think about that star a moment. No scientific theory, I believe, can adequately explain that star. Men have called it a meteor, a comet, a heliacal rising, a supernova. But none of these theories can explain a star that appeared in the east, led the Magi to the west slowly enough that they could follow, then suddenly reversed course in Jerusalem and led to the southeast, to Bethlehem. The star must have been a special creation of God. And I argue the star was actually what we call a theophany, that is an appearance of God, in the person of the Holy Spirit, to lead these Magi to Jesus Christ. But why would these Magi care that one had been born king of the Jews? After all, Israel was just a tiny kingdom. Possibly they understood the Hebrew concept of law and government. For the Persians recognized that the king is subject to the law and powerless to change the law. In that way, the Persian system of law and government was much more like the biblical system and like Western systems than most others in the Middle East and in the East. More likely, they remembered that Daniel was the prophet, and he had once led the Magi himself. Daniel, you recall, had been taken captive to Babylon around 605 BC. <clears throat> he was recognized to be ten times wiser than the Magi and the astrologers. That's recorded in Daniel 120. He rose to prominence in Babylon and later in Persia. He was a trusted advisor to the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar and the Persian king Darius, and he is called the master of the magicians or the master of the Magi. Four nine. So very likely, the learned Magi of Christ's time would recall Daniel and his writings. And his writing, chapter 9, we read the most precise of all of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming of Jesus Christ. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem and to Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And at the end, thereof shall be with a flood, and until the end of the war, desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for a week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined, shall be poured out upon the desolate. Now the term week there, the Hebrew term heftah of Daniel 9, is commonly interpreted as 70, or rather seven-year periods. 69 seven-year periods equals 483 years. King Artaxerxes had given the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem in 445 B.C. 483 years later would be 38 A.D. However, we need to understand the Hebrew year was 12 30-day months, or 360 days. Factoring of the difference would bring us to about 31 A.D., the likely date of Christ's crucifixion whereas Daniel says he was cut off, but not for himself. We don't know how much of this the Magi understood, but they remembered the words of their old master Daniel, and they knew that salvation of the world would not come through the legions of Caesar, but through the one who would be born king of the Jews. And without condoning astrology, God used the means most familiar to them, 
to lead them to his son. But the world continued to look for a conquering prince, not a suffering savior. Augustus reigned well for the most part, and his reign brought in the Pax Romana or the Roman peace. But the Pax Romana only restrained sin and evil, did not conquer them. And after the, the death of Augustus, his plan for government crumbled. But the ancient dream of the God-man who would bring heaven down to earth remained. With the rise of the Roman Empire, the classic longing for a savior was given to political form. The coming savior was the emperor. And as the people's hopes were dashed with the tragic collapse of each emperor, they looked thirstily with equal hope to the next. When Nero ascended to the throne in 54 AD at the age of 17. The philosopher Seneca said of him, As the red morning drives away dark night, as neither haze nor mist endure before the sun's rays, as everything becomes bright when my chariot appears, so it is when Nero ascends the throne. His golden locks, his fair countenance, shine like the sun as it breaks through the clouds, strife. Injustice and envy collapse before him. He restores to the world the golden age. Well, that's Seneca's view of Nero. He was a lover of Greek culture. He proclaimed himself to be Zeus the liberator and embarked upon a reign of madness, tyranny, and bloodbaths. He would cover Christians with tar and set them up as living torches in the imperial parks. He murdered his wife and his mother kicked to death his lover who was expecting his child. After 14 years, the army revolted, and as Nero committed suicide, his dying words were, what an artist to die than me. Well, succeeding emperors claimed to be the best of gods, but acted as though they were the worst of men. And still, men looked to Rome for salvation, seeing the city of God through the city of the earth. Stauffer, again, so graphically writes about this period, the triumph of the city of God was to be reached by the self-exaggeration and self-destruction of the city of the earth. The self-exaggeration and self-destruction of the classical Advent philosophy was completed in the third century AD, the 200s in other words. This is the age of which the schoolboy knows nothing because no young mind can bear the knowledge of what happened to them. It was the century of the assassination of emperors, of the sarcophagi of the dance of death, of the systematic persecution of Christians, the century of twisted titles, Magnus, Maximus, Maximinus, Magnentius, Maxentiu, Maximarius, Maximilianus are the names given to themselves by those who wanted to be accounted important. In this century, the political eschatology on which men had been nourished for thousands of years ran amok through the Roman world. About the year 260, Galenus struck a coin with the inscription, the genius of the Roman people has entered the capital of the empire. The patron spirit was incarnate himself in the emperor Galenius, but in the same year, this imperial genius was murdered. In the year 275, Aurelius was celebrated as God and Lord from birth. In the same year, the divine Lord was murdered. The following year, the Emperor Probus ascended the blood-girt throne and struck a series of coins with the famous inscription, Adventius Augusti, and the portrait of the Emperor rising with his riding up with his hand raised in greeting and blessing, led by the goddess Victoria. In the year 282, Probus was murdered. 
In 287, a coin of the Emperor Carausius appeared, and on it we see Britannia, the goddess, greeting the Emperor as he arrived from the continent, with the expected greeting, Expectate Wayne, that is, come, thou long for one. But Carausius likewise is murdered, and the story goes on through the collapse of Rome, the Dark Ages, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, mercantilism, colonialism, imperialism, the modern age, the postmodern, and so on down through the years. In the age in which many pride themselves as being too sophisticated to believe the state is divine, the German philosopher Hegel nevertheless proclaims that the state is God walking on earth. Do we use the term God in the sense of old spirit? An age which rejects the transcendent God of the Bible places man as the greatest of, and the greatest of man's institutions, the state, on the throne in the place of God. We give to the state all authority. We expect the state to make all important decisions. We look to the state for all material blessings, and we trust the state to make our laws and define our values. Truly, for many Americans, the state has become our God. We think that we're too sophisticated to practice state worship, but are we? If we look to the state to define truth, if we look to the state to say with finality what is law, if we look to the state to supply all our needs from the cradle to the grave, are we not worshiping the state as though the state were a god? Now, amid all this intrigue, amid all this carnage, Christ was born in a Bethlehem stable. He grew as a humble child in Nazareth. He lived and taught and served among men. He died on a Roman cross. And his enemies thought they had conquered him. But there he paid the atoning price for the sins of the world, washing away forever the sins the emperors could only imperfectly restrain. And there he established his kingdom, a kingdom that is not of this world, but that will endure forever. So look again at these magi. We see them portrayed as various places of the world, I was watching one nativity movie just a couple days ago in which the Magi are portrayed as one being from Africa, one being from China, and one being from India. I think that's unlikely. The term Magi is a specific term of art that is used for those of this priestly caste there in Persia and Babylonia. But they were wise men indeed. We don't know how much they understood, but we do know they made wise choices. They passed by the Caesars and the Herods of their day. They didn't go to the Pharaohs. Rather, they came to worship the newborn king. They were influential men of their day. They respected and served the kings of their respective lands. But their soul's allegiance was to the king of kings. To him who wears the mitre of eternity. They respected the godly state and that ruler who governs according to biblical principles. But they feared the messianic state that makes itself God. They knew that government is an honorable vocation. But they also knew that earthly government will never usher in the golden age. Only God through his true son can do that. 
And on Christmas, God did become man. God became incarnate, taking upon himself human flesh, so that he could redeem mankind through his death on the cross, through his resurrection, his ascension, and his second coming. Wise men sought him then, and wise men seek him now. And as we say in those last words of that great old carol, O come, O ye faithful, Venite Azuremus Domina, O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Well, that's my Christmas meditation for today. But in the closing minutes, I thought I might talk about a case where once again it might seem as though the state is making itself out to be God, and where we are seeing, we hope, a situation where somebody is standing up to this and saying, no, there is a higher law. This case has been brought to our attention here at the Foundation just yesterday, although it goes back to Halloween. It's in Selma, Alabama, and on Halloween there was a preacher who was speaking against some of the revelry that was going on at Halloween time there. And he was just there on the street. He was using a microphone. He was not being rude, not being obnoxious, not being threatening, not getting in people's faces or blocking traffic or blocking pedestrian traffic either. But a patrol car pulls up next to him, and two officers get out. Now, Selma has quite a history of racial strife in the past, and that unfortunately has not ceased. But this preacher is black, and both of the officers who step out of the car are likewise black, so it doesn't seem that this incident has any racial implications at all, but the officers ask him to show him their, his, his paperwork. He says, I have no paperwork. And they say, well, you need a permit in order to preach here on the street. And he said, I don't need a permit. I'm entitled to preach by the First Amendment. Guarantees freedom of speech. And the officers say, well, if you're coming here and you're using a microphone, you need a permit. And so this man who was, he addressed the officers as sir, he was being respectful. He sets down his microphone and begins speaking them without a microphone, at which time he is handcuffed and arrested. Well, we need to know more about the case, and we hopefully will be meeting with him within just a few days to discuss the case further. But it looks to us this is a case in which Caesar is trying to take the place of God. And Caesar is saying... You cannot proclaim the word of God without my permission. Now, the First Amendment recognizes a right of free speech and a right of free exercise of religion. Now, notice what I just said. First Amendment recognizes this right. The First Amendment does not give this right. Only God gives rights. The Constitution and the Bill of Rights don't give us any rights. They merely confirm and secure and protect the rights that God has already given us. 
That is clear from the Declaration of Independence, where we read that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed not by their government with certain negotiable privileges, but by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Rights come from God. All government does is secure or make possible the enjoyment and protection of those rights. Now, it is true that the state does have the authority to impose what we call reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions. For example, they would have a right to stop you if you were out there right in the center of rush hour traffic preaching. But that wasn't the case here. He was standing some distance apart from the people that he was speaking to, these people seem to be going by in sort of a Halloween procession, and he is probably 20 feet away from them. He's not blocking traffic or anything like this. And so we don't feel that this restriction can be justified as a time, place, and manner restriction. And we are optimistic that when this goes to court, assuming it does, that the court will say that a regulation like this violates the guarantees of the First Amendment because it interferes with a right that has been granted by God. I need to read more about this, but I'm reading that the Fifth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals has just made a decision, too, and that they have struck down the shop mandate that the federal government has imposed upon federal employees. And this, too, is a good sign. Yes, they probably have some authority to make some restrictions for health reasons on the job. And several courts in the past have made a distinction on this. That, For example, a mask requirement. Now, whether you think masks are effective or not is not the issue. But the point is, a mask is something that you can put on when you report to work and take off when you leave work. A shot is not something that you can put on when you go to work and take off and you leave. You get that shot, that's permanent. And so the authority of the federal government to require you to wear a mask while you're on the job versus the authority to get a shot that affects you 24-7 are very different. And it looks to me like this Fifth Circuit decision is a very strong blow struck on behalf of the individual liberty of all American citizens. Anyway, so we see some positive things. We see other things going on, and there seems to be an attempt now to maybe hack the Senate by adding some additional votes in the Senate. That is, we see an effort to bring Puerto Rico into the United States as a state with the motive, obviously, that Puerto Rico would probably vote Democrat, and that would be two additional Democrat senators. And I can see arguments for or against Puerto Rico being a state. Point of the matter is, this should not be something that is decided on a strictly partisan issue. And the decision should be made at a time when we can decide whether this is really in Puerto Rico's interest and whether it is in the United States' interest to make Puerto Rico a state. It shouldn't be something that is favored simply because it will give one party two extra votes or opposed by the opposite party for the exact same reason. And unfortunately, in both the House and the Senate, it would appear that the votes on this issue would be divided almost exactly according to party lines. 
That's not the way to make that decision. It should be made at another time. There's proposals again to pack the Supreme Court. And again, that's a very dangerous thing to do. Now, it is true that the Constitution does not specify how many justices are to be on the court and that Congress has the authority to add justices. But to do so simply for the purpose of getting one side or the other an advantage, while President Biden once said back when he was in the Senate, this is a bonehead idea. And it's a bonehead idea today. Well, with that, I wish everyone a Merry Christmas, and we will see you next week. Thank you.